Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Why don't we do that right now? It's always good to just start in prayer, right, Father? All right, come on and begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this night and the privilege that we have of gathering together as your children. We ask you now to send your Holy Spirit to be our guide and our teacher that we might truly learn from you as we encounter these sacred texts. We pray that you would be with us this night to uh, strengthen us in our souls and in our minds. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also have handouts tonight. Does anyone need a handout? Raise your hand. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest of the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter. He is a priest in residence at Our Lady of Hope in Potomac Falls and also serves as chaplain of the St. John Fisher Ordinariate Community of Northern Virginia. He was raised in the Episcopal Church and then spent over 30 years in parish and denominational ministry. He was ordained a priest and later consecrated a bishop for the charismatic Episcopal Church and then appointed as Archbishop of the Eastern Province of the Charismatic Episcopal Church. In November 2006, he and his wife were received in a full communion with the Catholic Church and in June 2012, he was ordained as a Catholic priest. Father Sly and his wife have three grown children and eight grandchildren and reside in Potomac Falls, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Father Randy Sly. Thank you, Deacon. Appreciate that. What were those topics again? Satan, <laughs> sin, <laughs> sex. Well, actually, technically, we're going to talk about those tonight indirectly because that's what Clement was facing in Corinth. So. It is a delight to be here and to be able to share with you in this particular teaching and to um, be a part of the Institute. I've attended many of these gatherings from your side, and it's very intimidating to be on this side, let me tell you. You are a tough crowd. I mean, I, was, I don't think I've been this nervous about teaching in a long time. Anyway, um, this, is, this is a wonderful and delightful time. By the way, a plug for the personal ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter and the St. John Fisher Ordinariate Community. We are a brand new community as a part of the ordinariate established by the Holy Father. And we're beginning to hold monthly programs that any of you that would like to be uh, on the mailing list, Heidi Seward, uh, the secretary for the community, is here. And Heidi would be delighted to uh, get your name and your email address and put you on the distribution list for that. Okay, to the subject at hand, the Epistle of St. Clement. As we begin this, I want to give you an idea of how I want to approach this. I am not what you would call an expert on Clement. I am a beggar telling other beggars where I found some wonderful bread, okay? So this is our opportunity together to discover this incredible treasure, as the deacon said, that is found in the early church. And my interest, I've always had a love and an interest for the fathers, particularly Ignatius, or as some like to call him, Ignatius, <laughs> and um, Ironicus, no, Irenaeus. Uh, but Clement is a fascinating individual. So I really became quite intrigued with him in a renewed sort of way about, I don't know, maybe about a year or so ago, when a, a friend of mine from Boston was down and was talking about how Clement had made such an impact in his personal life. And he was talking to a group and he said he recommended everybody go back and read Clement's epistle. Well, I took him up on it. And I went back and refreshed myself on 
on Clement. And I, my goodness, what an amazing, amazing letter we have here. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about the epistle of St. Clement. Now, there are two epistles, and in the, uh, the flyer and the poster and everything, it talks about the epistles of Clement, of St. Clement. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. The second epistle is not from him. So we're not going to even cover it. It's uh, pseudo-Clement. And it is, however, a great early sermon. In fact, it's the earliest homily of the New Testament church. And that's one of the reasons that I did upload a PDF version of it onto, or gave it to the deacon to put on the uh, ICC website, because it's good reading. It's just not from our author. And so we're going to focus all of our attention on this one amazing letter, the first letter to the Corinthians from St. Clement. Now, who was St. Clement? He was a bishop of Rome. Many of you will remember, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, he's mentioned uh, very often in our churches because we talk about Linus Cletus Clement in the uh, Roman canon. So he's the third successor of Peter with some saying he was actually the first or the second. What he has done is he has put together what I would consider an amazing book. And this is what Johannes Quasten says in his book, Petrology. It is among the most important documents of sub-apostolic times, the earliest piece of Christian literature outside the New Testament for which the name, position, the date, and author are historically attested. So that makes this particular document extremely important. Now, if you look at some of the historians and scholars of uh, patristic literature and the New Testament, Kenneth Whitehead, uh, Quaston, and others, they basically make 96 AD to be the target date when Clement wrote this particular epistle. Now, there are others who would give it a much earlier dating, and we'll kind of show why that is, but they're putting it in the 80s, somewhere in 80 AD. So we're talking first century documentation concerning the life of the church. Now, one of the most interesting things about Clement's letter is that we heard about it from others before we actually discovered and had a chance to read it. Because Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, cites this amazing document even before anybody had ever discovered it. In his ecclesiastical history, he quotes Bishop Dionysius of Corinth, who said this, and Bishop Dionysius is from 170 AD. And this was in a letter to Pope Soter about a letter that the Pope had sent to the Corinthian church. And this is what the bishop wrote. Today we observed the holy day of the Lord and read out your letter, which we shall continue to read from time to time for our admonition as we do that with the formerly sent letter from Clement. So that's in 170 A.D. And this was another thing. This is one of the things Eusebius said. He said, there is one recognized epistle from Clement, long and wonderful, which he drew up for the church of the Corinthians in the name of the church of the Romans, where there had been dissension in Corinth. We have learned that this letter was publicly read in the common assembly of many churches, both in the days of old and in our time. One of the things that's interesting, remember, this is before canon. This is before the canon of Scripture was established. And at that time, this letter that we're studying was actually read as a part of the Scripture in the liturgical celebrations of the church. It was considered as Scripture of the day. Now, where can we find this? There are manuscripts now of this, and the first one is the Codex Alexandrinus, which is in the 5th century. Now, this Codex has the Old Testament. It has the New Testament. It contains all of 1 Clement except for chapters 57 through 64. And it also has 2 Clement, which doesn't actually come from Clement. But this was discovered in 1627 and was presented to King Charles I of England by Cyril Lucar, the Patriarch of Constantinople. 
and now is in the British Museum. So you can actually see this codex. Okay, the next one is the Codex Hierosolomitanus. It's, I've studied that all day. I've just kept saying that over and over again. <laughs> Hierosolomitanus, Hierosolomitanus, Hierosolomitanus. Anyway, this was another one that was in the 11th century. It was discovered in 1875, and it was in the library of the Patriarchal Monastery in Jerusalem. Again, this contains both First Clement and it contains the entire Greek text of First Clement as well as the text of Second Clement. Now there are some other ones. There's the Syriac translations of the 12th century, and there are about three of those that have been found. There's also a Latin manuscript that was translated in about the second or third century, and also two Coptic translations uh, that were from about the fourth century. So this letter that we're studying, there's a lot of historical documentation that has now come forward and is a part of what we're going to be looking at. So we've got great documentation for this letter. Now, let me just say this. We're going to stop for just a second because before we get into the letter, we need to take a lesson in scripture study that applies also to the work of the fathers. And this comes from my old Bible teacher in seminary, Dr. Robert Trena, who pounded it into us that context is everything. And he used to say this, a text without a context is a pretext. And Deacon is back there going, yes. <laughs> you cannot have a reliable understanding of what is going on in a scripture without understanding the context of that scripture. The circumstances, conditions, factors, state of affairs, situation, background, the scene, setting, frame of reference, contextual relationship. In other words, how it relates to the text before it and how it relates to the text after it. Let me just encourage you on a point of this. This is coming from me, not the Lord. Okay, I'm using a Pauline quote from 1 Corinthians. This is coming from me, not the Lord. When you're in Mass, you know the little missalettes that you have that have the scripture in it? Those are really wonderful because you get to read along with the lecture if you want to. But if you really want to see what that scripture looks like, sometime during the week, get your Bible, break it open, and look at that scripture in the context of where it falls with other scriptures. You will be amazed at what you will find that will help you to understand the text in a much better way. Wouldn't hurt me at all if you actually brought your Bible to church. <laughs> I would kind of like that. But anyway, so text without a context is a pretext. Well, let me give you, I'm going to just take you on a little tiny bit of a Bible drill to show you what's going on. And we're going to turn to the book of Romans. It's a good book to study because that's where Clement was bishop. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. I've got the Revised Standard Version here. I'm going to read from this and have you follow along. We're in Romans 12, starting at the 14th verse. Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, just an aside here, how many of you in your less holy state rejoice with those who weep and weep with those who rejoice? You know, sometimes we get too jealous of other people. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, let me do a little bit of confession time and tell you that when I was a young and budding clergyman in my very, very early days, my rookie days of ministry, I was talking with a youth group about this verse, 
And this is what I told them. I said that in this particular verse, when it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I said, isn't it wonderful that we can do loving things and what it will do to our enemy is make them even more angry inside. <laughs> we're heaping burning coals on their head. We're making them so frustrated. Context is everything. In doing some further study on that passage, I found out an interesting cultural nuance in the New Testament days. And that is that in the New Testament days, that in their homes, the women would cook on these little braziers, these little stoves. And what would happen is sometimes the stoves would go out. And so in order to get the stove relit, many times they would take the stove to the neighbor for new coals. Now guess how those stoves were transported? On the head. That's how they transported things. So this was a statement back in those days to heat burning coals on someone's head was basically to rekindle the fire. To rekindle the fire. What a difference. So you take your, don't you think? You're taking your brazier and you're going next door and while you stand there, your neighbor heaps burning coals on your head. So what the apostle was saying here to the Romans is when you feed your enemy, when you give him something to drink, what you're doing is you're possibly rekindling the fire in his heart and causing him to be again someone with love. How different it is when we see the context of things. So anyway, I wanted to just share that with you because we're going to spend a lot of time tonight looking around the letter and most of the time, and well, all of the time next week looking into the letter. So first thing we need to talk about is Clement of Rome, third successor to Peter. That's his portrait right there. He stood very still while that was written, that icon. <laughs> And he was the third successor for Peter. Now, Clement of Rome was the son of Faustinianus and Masadiana. So uh, the hardest thing in his young life was to learn how to pronounce the names of his parents. <laughs> he was a Roman by birth, but had a Jewish heritage. One historian by the name of Ulhorn said this about Clement that I think is very fair, but also it can kind of help us to understand what we're facing here. And he said, one of the most celebrated names of Christian antiquity is Clement, but so overgrown with myths that it has become next to impossible to lay the bare historical facts which it represents. Now that's a little bit harsh, but let me tell you that there are some really strange and wild stories about Clement. The most particularly interesting one is called The Golden Legend of St. Clement. And in this, it talks about the fact that Massidiana, his mother, was having problems because Faustinianus, his brother, fell in love with Massidiana. And she kept pushing him away. And finally, in order to escape his amorous attention, she ran away with two of her sons, Faustinus and Faustus. And they ran away from Rome to Achaia, to the area where Corinth is located. But on their journey, which was by sea, the two boys fell overboard and she assumed that they drowned. So she landed distraught without her sons and she wandered around and became a beggar in the area. Well, suffice it to say that then Clement grew up as an orphan because Faustinianus went off to look for his wife. He grew up, was converted by Peter, and it joined Paul on his journey to Corinth. And there, guess what? He finds his mother. But not only that, but Peter is there. And Peter has two disciples. And I can't remember. Aquia and Nicaea, I think, were their names. And they meet the lady. And they say, guess what? Our names are really Faustinus and Faustus. We're your other sons. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the father shows up. And everybody is just having this wonderful party. And it's just it's not true, but it's a great story. It's a great story. Okay. Clement did receive conversion through the ministry 
of St. Peter or Paul. It's not sure who it was that actually brought him into the direct point of faith, but he was then involved in both of their lives in a very special way. For example, he is referenced in Philippians 4.3. If you turn with me to the book of Philippines, <laughs> Philippians, and in 4.3, this is where you have Paul basically making his final statements to the Philippians, and he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They obviously are fighting. And I ask you who have a true co-worker, help these women, for they have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Clement was an attendant with St. Paul on the latter part of his missionary journey. Okay, he was ordained by St. Peter, ordained a bishop by St. Peter. And this is, by the way, ordained by St. Peter, has been confirmed by Tertullian in his writings. So we're not just taking this by guesswork. These things uh, have been tracked by some of the apostolic writings that succeeded. This is where it gets a little bit cloudy, but the common understanding at this point is that he was third in succession after Peter, that Linus was a bishop for 12 years, and then Cletus was a bishop for 12 years, both of them martyred, and then Clement was a bishop for nine years, and was then banished by Emperor Trajan to Pontus, which is the southern area along the Black Sea. And it was there where they believed that he was martyred. When you talk about Linus, Linus could have begun his episcopate as early as 56 AD, or as late as 67 AD. So you've got an 11-year span of differentiation, but somewhere between 56 and 67. He ruled for 12 years as the bishop in Rome. So then Cletus, the next bishop, from about either began in 68 to 76, somewhere in that realm, and then Clement, somewhere between 80 and 88. So you can understand now why there's even a wondering about when his letter was written because it all depends on when he actually was the Bishop of Rome. Some groups, in fact, the Chronicle, according to Hippolyte, puts it Linus, Clement, and then Cletus. Other historians have said that actually St. Peter had ordained Clement to be the first bishop, but that he stepped aside in order for Linus to take it and then Cletus and then he took it after that, that he was around as a part of the leadership during that time. It's, it's a little bit cloudy, but you can see that definitely the Roman canon, we have the first three bishops of Rome as a part of our work there. Okay, so that's Clement in a nutshell. Well, what about the church in the time of Clement? What was the church like? And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. This is kind of a snapshot of the early church from the book of Acts, but the continuity of what is taught here was maintained from that point on. And here in chapter 2, verse 42, and by the way, this is a great summary statement. This is after we find out that there were 3,000 souls added to the New Testament church after the preaching of St. Peter on the day of Pentecost. And this is what it says. And they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. These were the four basic ingredients of New Testament life. The apostles' teaching and fellowship. The word apostles there in the original is, in fact, a distributive term. We're talking about the apostles' teaching and the apostles' fellowship. Now, what does this mean? The apostles' teaching, of course, is the doctrinal teaching, the basic truths that the apostles were teaching to the church that they had received from Jesus Christ. The apostles' fellowship is the word koinonia. And this, again, is the fellowship, the community. And so those who were following after Jesus Christ that were adhering to the teaching basically also became a part of an initial community that was at the center with the apostles. So the apostles became the center of their fellowship. 
So this was the beginning of the church, and the word ecclesia means assembly. So they have assembled themselves together. They are basically taking in the teaching of Christ. The breaking of bread, what do you think that is? Eucharist. That is the Eucharistic meal. And remember in the early times, just after the times of our Lord, as the apostles and those that were following began to do this, they first on Sabbath day had synagogue. That's where we have the liturgy of the word from the mass. They had synagogue. And then on Sunday, the Lord's day, they had Eucharist. It wasn't until the persecution began to stir up that they combined the two and they began to meet only together rather than meeting with the Jews for synagogue for the, the liturgy of the word. They began to do it all, but they did it still in the same way with two different sections of the service, just like our Mass is today. The liturgy of the word followed by the liturgy of the Eucharist. And prayers, of course, they were praying. But then it goes on and it says... And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and distributed them all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you want to see the ingredient for a healthy New Testament church, there it is. And that's a great thing to go back and actually do some studying over. We're not going to look at it in great depth today. But out of that, and I like the way that Eberhard Arnold puts this in his uh, message of the early church, and this is what he said that message is. He who is dead has come alive again. The present age of the world is nearing its end. We are faced with the greatest time in the history of the earth and the order of creation that ever was and ever will be. This was how the New Testament believer looked at his faith. This was the greatest time in history. The greatest time since the order of creation started and ever will be. This is the most poignant time. If we could capture that in our hearts today. Whitehead says this. It is not evident from the text of Clement's letter that an established grade of ministerial orders of the Church of Rome in his day consisted of bishops, presbyters, and deacons. Now, what does this have to do with it? Basically, now we're into the issue of government. We have the message of the gospel. This is the greatest time in history. But how are we going to order that which takes place? Well, the big question is, how do bishops and presbyters relate? And I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but only to say that in the New Testament, and you can see this in a number of scriptures in Acts, Philippians 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, and 1 Timothy 4, 14, you can see that the term presbyter, which means the priest, or the, well, actually means elder, but that's where we get the term priest, and the term bishop, episkopos, in the New Testament were used interchangeably. So when we read Clement, we're going to see the same thing happen. Sometimes he'll use presbyter, sometimes he'll use bishop, but he's talking about a hierarchical structure. Here's why I'm trying to bring this out to you. It's an important part of Clement's letter is the whole issue of episcopal authority because there are many that are trying to look at the New Testament documents and formulate the fact that in the early New Testament church, that it was governed either by a congregational form of government or by a board of directors, not a bishop. And they're pointing to a number of these things saying, see, there's no real bishop. And what they're saying is that the single bishop in a hierarchical authority in a church didn't exist until later, and it was something that was put onto the church by those leaders, which is not the case. It was always the case that it was raised up from the inside and that a succession of bishops was always, always a part of what was going on. Ignatius of Antioch, which is again the beginning of the uh, second century, used to talk about the fact that the presbyters and the deacons were under the authority of the bishop. They said that for the presbyters to relate to the bishop in obedience and working together is like all of the strings of an instrument playing beautiful music together. That is a rough, sly paraphrase of that. 
But Episcopal government was evident in the letter of Clement. We'll see that as we get into it. Because of a couple of things, and this is one of the things you can look at. Number one, he was writing the Church of Rome. You see this in, in the very first line of Clement. The Bishop of Rome is writing, but he's writing the Church of Rome to the Church of Corinth. Well, if they're independent churches, what business is it of the Church of Rome what's going on in Corinth? None of their business, except that the Church of Rome was seen as having primacy. Not primacy just in terms of lording it over. And this is the thing that is beautiful about Clement's writings that you're going to see. It's not about lording it over, but it's about having a burden for the care of souls in that place. That what Clement is really doing in this letter is being a pastor. A pastor to a church that is in great turmoil. A church that is just really not being what it needs to be. So, anyway, we're going to see that pastoral heart really come out. Okay, one other part of context that we've got to get to. Boy, this time is getting away. I've got eight hours more material if you guys want to hang around. <laughs> Go ahead. Corinth, the city. This is a commercial city in the center of the Mediterranean world. We're just going to run through this fairly quickly. That is Corinth today. It is right there where that little A is. And you can see that it's located in an isthmus between two bodies of water. And it's located between the central Greece to the north and the Peloponnopian Peninsula. That's hard to say, you know, when you think of it. The Peloponnesus Peninsula. Boy, there it is, uh, right there. And uh, go ahead, Keith, and give it, there it is. And this is what it looks like today in a satellite view. There's Corinth right there. And they've now dug a canal through there. But as early as 29 BC, what they would do is a boat would come to the port here, and it would be rolled on logs across this isthmus and then put in the water on the other side kind of a modern-day canal, you know, but we're using logs instead. Population of Corinth was about 200,000 at the time, but it was a massive city having to do with a lots of foreign people coming from the outside because it was a major trade area. And so you had multiple shrines. This is the shrine to Apollo right here. Multiple shrines, multiple deities, multiple languages, multiple cultures. Uh, they had a gladiatorial contest in this city that would draw people from all around Greece to attend, as well as what was called the Isthmian Games, again, another Olympic type of activity. They also had a reputation of being an immoral city. This is where we get the term to Corinthianize, a very immoral city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, and Paul, in 51 AD, and I'm not going to have us look at the scripture, but if you want to look at it later, Acts 18 is where Paul comes to Corinth and has an amazing impact in ministry. It's on his second missionary journey. Here is where he discovers Aquila and Priscilla. This is where Silas and Timothy join him, and there are many converts to the faith that are listed in the scripture in Acts 18, 1 through 18. And then he goes back again in Acts 20, and he revisits this on his third missionary journey before he goes to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome and his death. Now, let's go ahead and look for a second at the problems. And the reason I want to bring this up is these are the same problems that Clement faced just, what, maybe 30 years later. The same stuff was around. And so here's what we've got. Dissension. That's in um, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Internal division, 112. Incest, 515. See, this deacon, I mean, we should have thousands here right now. We could get into this. Incest, lawsuits, sexual immorality, marriage and singleness, state of life, what state you find your life in, food offered to idols, apostolic authority. Who is in charge here in the church? Liturgical problems with the Eucharist. Gifts of the Spirit and orderly worship. And finally, the denial of the resurrection. So it goes all the way from dissension governmentally to immorality, problems in marriage and family, to basic heresy. All in one little church. Wouldn't you love to be the Bishop of Corinth? <laughs> and this was why Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians. 
The first letter is, of course, the longest. The second letter, of course, we have. The third letter is either lost or it's incorporated in the second letter, which is my personal belief. But these are the things that Paul was facing. He couldn't get to them at the time. So instead, he wrote them letters. And thanks be to God, because we even have them now here today. So this is what we are now seeing and facing in terms of what's taking place in the Corinthian church. Okay, now this, I gave you a handout, and there's a few things that I want to have you look at here. One is we're going to just look briefly at the outline, but there's some key themes right from Clement that I want us to look at tonight from his actual letter. And then next week, we're going to get into the real meat of his letter and look not at the entire text, but look at portions of it. First Clement is uploaded on the ICC website for your, uh, if you'd like to either download it, it's a PDF, so you can keep it on your iPad if you want to. To be honest with you, I had trouble finding a really good version that I could get rights to publish without having to pay. And so I used this one from Roberts and Donalds, and uh, it's okay. <laughs> but later I found out that they completely eliminated the liturgical prayer text at the end of the document. So I'm going to be looking for another one before next week. But it's got everything else, and I actually included the liturgical prayer text in your handout for tonight so you have it. But uh, there are a lot of places where you can go to read First Clement. I just to give you one to hand out, I had to find one that was cleared. First Clement is written in short chapters. And there are 65 of them. There is a salutation. That, of course, is where we get into, as it begins, the church of God which sojourns at Rome to the church of God sojourning at Corinth, to those who are called and sanctified by the will of God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from Almighty God, through Jesus Christ be multiplied. So it's very similar to the start of any of the New Testament letters that you've read. Very similar to that. And then we get into the introduction. That's chapters 1 through 3, the reason for the letter. This is a beautiful thing that, that Clement does, is he talks about the golden age. This is very similar to the style of communication that our Lord uses in the seven letters in Revelation. Because to those churches, what does he do first? He talks about all the wonderful things they did. You do this right. You do that right. But this one thing I have against you. And he talks about that. This basically is what Clement used as his technique in this particular letter. He talks about their golden age, all of the wondrous heritage and legacy they have as a church, and then nails them on, but here's the problem, the problem with dissension. What happened is that some rebellious members of the church actually kicked out the ordained leadership that had been instituted and placed there by the church. They basically took over. It was a mutiny. So he's writing to take care of that. So section 1 deals with the issue. Chapters 4 through 39, dealing with, with their moral character, the need for reconciliation, the importance of humility, etc., etc. One of the things, and as I really want to encourage you, either from the website uh, copy or from other texts that you might find, read the letter of St. Clement. It's not that long. But one of the things that's beautiful about it is see how pastoral he is. He is not out to hammer people and say, look, I'm in charge, you do it this way. In fact, one of the things he used, he uses entreaty. He says, let us do this. Let us do that. He's calling them up to a higher place and inviting them into a participation in the highest level of holiness. It's a powerful technique talks about the fact that God has an order in creation. And that order in creation, then, is something that permeates everything that God does, even into the establishment of the church. Then he talks about the solution and how he wants to bring about a reconciliation in the church. One of the things, and it's interesting because when Paul talked, you might remember this, when Paul talked to the Corinthian church and they had this person that was caught in incest, do you remember? They said, turn him over to the devil. <laughs> you know, cast him out of your fellowship. Turn him over to the devil that his soul may be saved. Well, that's not Clement's style. Clement said, let me invite you into this place. 
and including in the second section even a liturgy of reconciliation that many historians believe was a part of what the Romans used as a liturgical practice in their own church. That he was then inviting them to participate in this incredible, incredible reconciliation. And then the end of the book, chapters 62 through 65, is a recapitulation, kind of going back over everything that he has said. Now let's look at just a couple of things that I've given you, and we won't go into a super amount of detail because we're running short on time, but some of the key themes from First Clement. One of the things that you see in Clement is some great references to church history that is wonderful for us to behold. In the very first chapter, in fact, if you look at your handout, it says, because of the sudden and repeated misfortunes and experiences that have happened to us, we think we have more slowly turned our attention to those matters that are sources of strife among you. See that? He is talking about the fact that they're having their own issues in the Roman church. What kind of issues do you think they are? Persecution, Persecution exactly. This is a time when they had to basically hold on for dear life themselves. And because of that, they had to delay the request of the Corinthian church to deal with the issue. Now, what does that say? They saw it as a part of their task, their responsibility to respond because they were the prime church. They were the principal church. And their bishop was the bishop of Rome, the fourth pope. Because of the sudden and repeated misfortunes and experience that have happened to us, we think we have more slowly turned our attention to those matters that are sources of strife among you. Beloved, that is, of this holy and profane rebellion so foreign and alien to God's elect. Nails it right at the beginning. What you're doing is alienating God's elect. This is alien to what God's elect is all about. Another area of church history, and you'll see it in the full text, is that Clement also, and we'll get into this again in more detail next week, Clement also talks about two guys that we know about. This is in chapter 5, and he says this, But do not dwell upon ancient examples. Let us come to the most recent spiritual heroes. Let us take the noble examples furnished in our own generation. Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before our eyes the illustrious apostles Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two but numerous labors, and when he had finally suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee, and stoned. After preaching both in the East and the West, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world, and come to the extreme limit of the West. He went to Spain. That's one of the first indications that we have of Paul's Western travels beyond what was taking place in Greece and in Rome and Italy, and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Thus was he removed from the world and went into the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. Just think of it. For him to talk about Peter and Paul is the same as us talking about John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, and blessed John Paul the 2nd. This is close history for him. You know, we all talk about the death of blessed John Paul II, and many times now we're recounting, of course, the selection of Pope Benedict, the day when we heard Habemos Papam. And then back in 1978, I was talking with Father Saunders over at Our Lady of Hope, who was basically in college at, Our Lady, at uh, William and Mary, uh, the community college down there in Williamsburg. <laughs> um, he was down there in school, and his neighbor came in knowing that Father Saunders then an accounting major in William and Mary, was a passionate Catholic. He said, guess what? They elected a Polish pope. Father Son says, yeah, right, <laughs> sure. But we remember those days, don't we? That's the same as Clement talking about Peter and Paul. Just think of how close we are to the beginnings of the church, how close we are to the rock of Peter. And then in chapter 6, which is on your handout, he talks about 
Nero's persecution. This is just after the Peter and Paul reference, and he says, A great multitude of the elect were joined to these men who lived holy, worthy lives. Once these suffered outrages and torments because of jealousy, because they became the most beautiful example among us. Because of jealousy. Again, the same thing they're talking about, envy and jealousy with Peter and Paul. Because of jealousy, the women, Danaids and Durkai, were persecuted and suffered terrible and lawless torments. Now, those two names, Danaids and Durkai, there's a lot of uh, ambiguity in what that really was translated to be. And in fact, J.B. Lightfoot, in his translation of this, translates this as maidens and female slaves. He uses that as a cumulative rather than two individual women. But a whole group of women that were persecuted and martyred for their faith. Jealousy alienated wives from their husbands and altered what was said by our father Abraham. This is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. In other words, the persecution severed families. It severed families, those who believed against those who did not. So again, we have that in church history. Just quickly looking at church doctrine. What do you got, about two, three minutes? Okay. In church doctrine, we have really some beautiful declarations concerning ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Chapter 42. The apostles received the gospel for us from our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was sent from God. So Christ was from God and the apostles from Christ, so both came by the will of God in good order. But look at the first few words. The apostles received the gospel for us from our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it goes back to what Deacon used as the scripture, passing it on to faithful men who will pass it on to others also. Down in um, verse 4 of that same chapter 42, preaching in lands and cities by spiritual discernment, they began establishing their first fruits who were bishops and deacons for future believers. Again, he is pointing to the fact that there is, in fact, orders, ordained orders in the church. Chapter 44, talking about the ordinances of the apostles, he said, Our apostles knew from our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be contention over the title of the bishop's office. For this reason, having received perfect foreknowledge, they appointed those mentioned before and afterwards gave the provision that if they should fall asleep, other approved men would succeed their ministry. Apostolic succession. Talked about before the first century begins. I'm getting excited. This is, this is cool. Wow. Now, as for those appointed by them or by other men of high reputation, with the approval of the whole church, that is, those who have ministered without blame to the flock of Christ with humility, quiet, and beyond perfunctory service. We're not talking about a congregational vote. We're talking about the fact that the ordained presbytery had a say in looking at those who are being ordained and saying, yes, we do agree with that. How do we do that? Do you see how we might do that today in our ordination service? How that might happen? Anybody attend mine or one recently? I was about the most recent one around here. What do the presbyters do? They lay hands on them, just like the bishop does. The bishop lays hands first, then every presbyter there comes and lays his hand on the ordinand. They're just imparting a brotherly amen. You're one of us. The approval of the whole church. Verse 4, it will be no small sin against us if we eject from the bishop's office those who have offered gifts without blame and with holiness. This is, gets to the crux of the whole thing with what's going on in the Corinthian church. It will be no small sin against us if we eject from the bishop's office those who have offered gifts without blame and with holiness. This is what you did, he's saying. Blessed are the presbyters who have gone before us, who had a fruitful and perfect departure, for they no longer run the risk of someone removing them from their established position. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to be retired? Yeah. yeah, there's one. For we see that you have removed some who have ruled well from ministry that is honored by their blameless lives. Whoa. Look at this, uh, the primacy of the Roman church found in chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. If some are disobedient to the things said by him through us, he is saying that we are, in fact, Christ speaking to you. 
Let them know that they will involve themselves in not a little transgression and danger. I love the careful wording here. Not a little. That is like no small sin. Why don't you just say what it is? It's a big sin if you eject someone from the bishop's office. If you're disobedient to the things, you know what? It's a big transgression and a huge amount of danger. We will be innocent of this sin and will, with intense request and entreaty, ask for the Creator of all to preserve the number of His elect throughout the world unharmed through His beloved child, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, if you continue to do this, our prayer is going to be that the righteous and the elect are saved and you are defeated. In other words, He's setting up a battle line, but He's doing it in a gracious and pastoral way. Chapter 63, verse 2, You will supply us with joy and gladness if, by being obedient to the things... By the way, that was a typo in the book, believe it or not, that being by obedient... That was a typo in the actual book. I couldn't believe it. You will supply us with joy and gladness if, by being obedient to the things written by us through the Holy Spirit, you root out the unlawful anger of your jealousy in accord with the entreaty that we have made for peace and unity in this letter. That's the sublimation of it all. We want to come to peace. We are not here to destroy you. We don't want to take you off. We want to bring you in to the fullness of Jesus Christ. Well, there's resurrection again in chapter 24 and 25. We're going to spend some time on 24 and 25, uh, especially because of a very intriguing thing here. In chapter 25, verse 2, it says, There exists a bird called a phoenix. This is a unique bird and lives 500 years. And he goes on to explain in detail the phoenix. Well, we need to talk about that. Where in the world did we come up with the phoenix? We've all heard about it, but why is he taking something out of mythology? It'll be fun to study. And then the final thing we have here is for you to read, and that is the liturgy that he puts in here. Now, first of all, we have a few quotes having to do with liturgical practice. To the high priest belong particular liturgical services. The priests have their own place, and the Levites have their own ministries, too. The layman is given orders appropriate for the laity. Chapter 41, let each of you brothers please God in his own proper place with a good conscience not transgressing the determined rule of ministry and the indignity. So in other words, there is a rule of ministry that is ordered. And then 59 is the prayer. It's the liturgical prayer, and that will take us to the end. And uh, I'm going to stop right now and turn it back over to Deacon. Next week, we're going to dig in heavily into the letter itself and look at some very interesting pieces of that great letter. Deacon. Thank you very much, Father. I don't, think, I don't believe you were nervous at all. Okay. So we thank you very much for a wonderful presentation and a wonderful introduction to this gift that we have in our church. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.